It's the Airhead 247 Podcast. The Airhead 247 Podcast, powered by Wedgetail Ignition Systems, state of the art ignition for your 247 Airhead. Proudly made in Australia by motorcyclists who love their BMWs by the BMW Motorcycle Owners of America, who invite you to ride inspired. And Boxer2Valve.com, the premium supplier for all your airhead replacement parts. Now, let's get this thing fired up. Hello again, everyone. On the program this week, 247 rider and enthusiast Robert McIsaac. Robert is here to discuss an airhead event he's helped organize in North Carolina this coming May. You'll hear all about that in our chat, and of course, we'll have links and details for that event in the program description section. Robert grew up with motorcycles and 247s and got the airhead bug early in life, and it is not wavered one bit. So a fun chat with Robert just ahead. Glad to say William Plam is back with us this week to discuss the venerable Slash 5 series of 247s. Thanks to everyone who stopped by the website and picked up a shirt or decal or maybe something from the used parts stash. Those purchases help support our efforts here. And as my friend in Ohio says, we pressure treat you. So check out the site, airhead247.com. Speaking of the website, our man Nick from Airhead Misfits is frantically working on building and refining the service bulletin page we've been discussing and we're pumped to get this up and running for everyone out there. If you have any Airhead service bulletins you'd like to share, send us an email, airheads247 at hotmail.com. And be sure to take a minute and check out Nick's Airheads Misfits on Instagram. We've got a new post to check out on the Survivor Series on our website. Our friend Zach McGrath has a 93R100GS We've got some pics and a short Q&A session with Zach that we've posted on the website to check out. Zach is part of the next generation of 247 enthusiasts. In fact, I had a wonderful phone interview with him just the other night for the Survivor Series. Turns out we ended up talking for almost an hour, so we're just going to release that as a full podcast episode in the coming weeks. That said, check out the webpage, though, for the words and pictures on Zach's bike. We have that up now. Questions, comments, suggestions, be sure to drop us a line, airheads247 at hotmail.com. We enjoy hearing from you. To our listeners outside of the United States, I know there are many. If you've got a guest or topic suggestion relevant to your part of the world, please drop us a line. We are a United States-based program and sometimes a little bit U.S.-biased, so input from our listeners across the globe is quite helpful. Speaking of that, Hello to everyone in Calgary, Canada, the most listens and plays for the program in the last 30 days. So well done, everyone up in Calgary. Thanks for tuning in. Finally, be sure to rate and review on whatever platform you access the program. Your comments and reviews help us measure listener engagement. Oh, and by the way, five-star reviews only, please. Okay, off to Clayton, North Carolina for a visit with a lifelong Airhead and 247 enthusiast, Robert McIsaac on the Airhead 247 podcast. 
Pleased to be joined okay. by Robert McIsaac. And Robert, thanks for taking some time to visit with us tonight. We've got acquainted a little bit here over the past year or so. And going over the bio material you sent me preparing for this interview, I think it's safe to say you've virtually spent a lifetime around the 247 BMW. So I know your enthusiasm and passion for these motorcycles run deep. I want to get started out uh, by talking uh, about an event, first of all, that you've put together, helped plan and put together. Then we'll get in some of your bio and the neat bikes you own. But let's start out by telling folks the where, when, and what for about this event in May we've been discussing. Well, that's great, Darren. And thanks again for having me on tonight. Um, yeah, the event in May is one we're really excited about Uh one of the issues or challenges that I've certainly become aware of as I've grown up and around these BMWs is that service and support is really important. Uh, as a kid, I hung out at Stan's Cycle Shop in Doylestown, Pennsylvania, and at Sleegers and Forbes up in Whippany, New Jersey, all of which was fantastic. But as we've crossed into the uh, 2020s, one of the issues that I think many of us face is that the support network that helps with these bikes is aging, and that creates some interesting challenges all around for us. And uh, we've certainly here in North Carolina been looking to create a better and broader community of support. We use tech days that the airheads put on. But I'm fortunate enough to live in a town here where I met a, a gentleman about my age who has a deep and longstanding passion for motorcycles. They just didn't happen to be BMW motorcycles. And as we uh, uh, expanded our relationship, I discovered that he has a shop. Uh, it started off really as something to support his own personal collection of bikes, but his friends started dropping by with things that they were interested in. And so Aramachis and Ducatis and Moto Guzis became part of the, uh, the experience. I asked him if he'd be willing to engage with us on doing something with BMWs. And he said, absolutely, he would. And so we are in the process of getting ready for an open house in early May uh, that is going to be here in Clayton, North Carolina, open to all BMWs, frankly, but with a very particular focus on the 247 Airheads. So very exciting for us to be able to do something like that. And I would say that um, the problem statement or the issue is one we realized is not unique to North Carolina. When we put the word out that we were going to do this, I've gotten responses from people as far away as Florida and Michigan and California indicating that they were interested in participating. And uh, when we talked to the Vintage BMW Motorcycle Owners Club up in uh, Pennsylvania, New York, they actually mentioned that BMW AG in Munich was interested in hearing more about what we were doing. Oh, so that's interesting. I think we, isn't it, right? Yeah. I think we hit a nerve. Uh, sometimes solving your own problem helps other people too, and so we're excited about it. So Tell me a little bit about sort of what the weekend's going to look like, what you've got planned, and what folks can expect if, if they want to come down and attend. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's a big shop. I don't have square footage, but it is the biggest motorcycle shop that I've ever seen. It's basically a warehouse that's owned by a friend of the owner's. Um, what we're going to do is open the shop up at 8 o'clock on Saturday morning. Uh, it's going to be an opportunity to kick tires, enjoy some of the uh, cuisine that we have here in North Carolina. The food's pretty good. 
Um, by that time of year, fingers crossed, the weather is also outstanding. Uh, we're going to have some workshops, uh, some opportunities to explore and exchange information with uh, other uh, 247 owners. Also a chance to hear a little bit more about what the owner, Robert Wiggins, has in mind for Vintage Moto USA, the name of the shop. I think we're also going to have a chance to sort of explore what it is that BMW uh, 247 Airhead owners are looking for in the support network. There's obviously stuff that people do on their own. Uh, there are things that get done through the uh, through the tech days, but there are more expansive things that people are interested in. And all I have to do is look in the mirror every morning to realize that uh, that all of us are aging. Uh, that uh, my hair has clearly turned gray and my time laying on floors and things working under motorcycles. Uh, while I still enjoy some of it, I actually enjoy other people with lifts doing more of it. Um, and uh, we're also going to um, uh, have some uh, other guest speakers that are joining us. So we're still working the details out on that. Um, this being the 21st century and all, we're going to try and set it up so even some of that can be virtualized. So an old friend of mine and yours, Tom Cutter, uh, we're trying to make arrangements so that he could participate with us virtually, as could some others. Uh, and uh, and then on the second day, uh, the Sunday, uh, the shop is going to be opened up. So it's not just BMWs, but it's going to be all of uh, the Vintage Moto USA other customers uh, who come by. So we'll have a chance to break bread and and talk. Uh, with uh, owners of other vintage motorcycles. And what's interesting to me about this, Darren, is we started off with this problem statement of our own around the uh, vintage motorcycle support for the BMW community. But what I've come to understand is that we're in great shape compared to people who have vintage Triumphs and Nortons and BSAs uh, and vintage Japanese motorcycles. Uh, and so I think that this is a really interesting space and maybe also a reflection of the changing in how technology affects all of us. Um, what I'm, I'm kind of fond of saying is, you know, my airheads are 40 and 50 years old. Um, they'll be running 20, 30, 40 years from now if somebody takes care of them. I'm not so sure some of the modern equipment that is dependent on electronics is actually going to be able to say the same thing. That's a good point. So, yeah. I, yeah. I think building this community now serves us very well into the future. I want to mention something here. It sounds as though, to a certain degree, this will also be sort of a get-to-know-you about BMW Airheads for the shop owner, Robert. Uh, kind of, an, yeah. Kind of an introduction into the community, the culture, and, and the motorcycles uh, to a certain degree as well, no? Uh, yes, absolutely. I think to a significant degree. Um, you know, he's a, he is a sponge for knowledge, and it's fascinating as we sit and, and meet with him every other week. In fact, I've got another meeting with him tomorrow uh, explaining the differences between slash fives and sixes and sevens and the distinctions between the monoshocks and the twin shocks uh, bikes. Um, also, uh, he has been very gracious about diving in on working on things. So there is actually an R90S engine that is sitting on a workbench down there. There is one of the uh, Motorsport 78 uh, R100RSs that's down there being worked on. Uh, an R100RT wandered in there one day for some work. Uh, and so one of the things we found is that he's got a group of, uh, of very young 
uh, and very enthusiastic mechanics who clearly are very good at working on the other things that they do. And they're curious and they're hungry. And uh, one of the things we've pointed out is that there are some specialized tools that are required to work on these airheads. Uh, he, uh, Robert, has begun to accumulate some of those tools, and I've lent him some that I have in my collection. Um, we were talking about pullers for working on things like clutches and whatnot, and uh, they discovered that the uh, same tools that are used on Aramachis actually work on vintage airheads. And so they're making some very interesting connections on their own that I'm finding fascinating. And um, whenever I show up at the shop, which I do on a pretty regular basis on one of my airheads, it's guaranteed that, uh, like bees to honey, uh, people just accumulate around it, and it always becomes an opportunity to sort of explore the details and the nuances of the bike. And frankly, I just love the fact that people are excited and interested. It's a joyful thing from my perspective. So folks want to find out more about this event, registration, exact days, times, and locations, where, where are they going to do that? couple of things. Uh, we have uh, a flyer, uh, which we have been emailing out to folks who've asked for it. We have a registration website, and I can uh, post the link for that. Uh, it's also uh, readily available through the BMW MOA, through all of the various Facebook groups that are out and about in the wild for uh, the Airhead community and the BMW RA. Okay, uh, so perfect. the easiest thing, I mean, if you'd like, I can give you my email address and folks are welcome to send it there. Yeah, what we'll do, uh, as we do with uh, a lot of links and events and things like this, you can just send me that information. I'll post it in the description section of the podcast and folks will know just to go back and reference to that for links, email uh, addresses, phone numbers, et cetera, et cetera. So, and the dates on this again are what? It's May 4th and 5th. Uh, so coming up here in a little less than three months. Yeah, excellent. Well, when you mentioned this to me, uh, I thought, boy, what a great idea. It's almost, as I alluded to a little bit there before, it's almost like a tech day for the techs uh, in a way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a great way to describe yeah, it. That's and, exactly what it is. And uh, I know how passionate you are about these motorcycles and the community. And so I said, look, we need to get on the phone and uh, do an interview about this and get the word out so folks who are in and around the area or are interested in attending can do so. So, again, we'll have all the information in the description section of this podcast. And, of course, folks can find you, Robert uh, McIsaac, on Facebook. Uh, I think anybody who's on Facebook and you just do sort of an airhead search or uh, you hit your homepage button and it's sort of filtered through BMW motorcycle pages, a post of yours is going to show up once or twice a day anyway, right? That's exactly right. So, yes, easy to find me. Easy to find. Okay. All right, good. Well, I'm glad we got that covered now. I want to dig into your life with these motorcycles because it's really, as I mentioned at the top of the program, for lack of a better way of saying it, it's, it's really been a lifelong affair for you. Uh, let's just sort of get started like we do, no surprise here, at the beginning. And you can sort of fill in uh, these stories and uh, timeline and feather in some other information here. But uh, your dad uh, is really, I think, what got you into motorcycling initially. And your first uh, true BMW was one, the, an R96, I guess he bought. So let's just start out with that. I know he had a Honda Dream before. 
Uh, but if you can, tell me about your earliest memories of that R90 slash 6. Yeah, so I think for like for many of us, our fathers are responsible for a lot of the things we do. Uh, mine, I think, uh, cherished the idea of being the world's best big brother so that we lived in a house that had, uh, as my mother liked to say, uh, people around who liked to turn money into noise, and my dad was pretty good at that. Uh, he had gone through a series of Hondas uh, going back to a 64 150 Dream that was the first motorcycle I ever had a chance to, to ride. Um, I, I laugh because when I look back, uh, he was very concerned about its safety, so logically he kept it in the living room. Um, and as a kid, we used to sit on the bike and watch TV when we were out, <laughs> oh, out riding it about. That's, yeah, that's pretty, great. A pretty cool experience. Yeah. Um, yeah. Oddly enough, my wife doesn't think that's a great idea. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, he uh, he eventually um, uh, had bought a, a brand new uh, 1975 R90-6. What, what color? From, what color? It was uh, Polaris Silver. Oh, okay, uh, yes. Yeah, it was a stunning bike. And, you know, I'd been around Hondas and other uh, bikes where a 350 or a 450 was a big bike, and this 900cc thing came home. And I remember just sitting in the garage, flipping the throttle on the thing, and it was just an angry beast, which was fantastic. And uh, I'm not completely sure what inspired him to do that, but he set it up for touring and for, you know, those of a certain age, it was all uh, tricked out with the original Krauser bags and the Windjammer fairing, and he rode that thing all over the country. It was just a fantastic experience. How old were you? He, how old were you when he bought it? Yeah, I was. Uh, I was just about to turn eighteen. Oh, okay. So, yeah. So I, I graduated from high school. He bought himself a new motorcycle. That'd be how things went. Man, so, I'm like I'm liking your dad more and more here as as the story goes on. Oh yeah. Well, and he he became a member of the North Jersey BMW Club, and of course this is the mid '70s, and a lot of the air, uh, BMW clubs were really just getting started. The, the MOA just had their 50th anniversary, so this is the very early days, and. So every Sunday, uh, as long as the weather was good, we would meet at a shopping center parking lot, and you'd get 20 or 30 BMWs that would show up, and we would just figure out some place to go and ride, and we would. And at that point, I had a, a Honda 354-cylinder, uh, which was a pretty fantastic bike in its own right. But I started lusting after uh, a BMW of my own. And uh, a friend who had one of the original 74 R90s mentioned to me that she had a friend who had a uh, 1973 and a half long wheelbase R60 slash five that had 1,800 miles on it, and she was scared to death of it, and she just wanted to sell it. <laughs> and so my dad said, "You know, it's never going to get any better than this. We should go and check it out." And we did, and he lent me the money to buy it, the delta between selling my Honda and buying the the, uh, the uh, R60, and we were off to the races. We had the two BMWs in the garage, wow. and that was 1977, uh, so I was just uh, 
just entering my college years, and I felt pretty pretty fortunate to have that and to be able to share that time with my dad. Yeah. Do you remember what you paid for that bike back then? I do. I paid $1,800 for it. Wow. So $1,800 in 1977 money, of course, is a little different than it is currently, but still. I was going to say, I mean, that is not necessarily a bargain price. Yeah, that's exactly right. It was uh, considerably cheaper than buying a brand new R60 slash six would have been. Yeah. Um, You know, again, I probably say five or six hundred dollars, as I remember, which five or six hundred dollars back then was a big chunk of change. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And and so I felt pretty fortunate. And, you know, it's kind of funny when I look back on it, because at the time it was like, oh, geez, I'm not sure how I feel about that toaster tank thing. Um, of course, today it's like, gosh, I love that toaster tank thing. Um, and the chrome hubcaps that were on those where they had the drum brakes in the front and the back, it's like, well, it looks kind of, I don't know. But of course, today you look at that and go, man, Hans Booth really knew what he was doing when he put that setup together. So, um, now it's, I, it's funny. Well, I want to ask change. you, I want to ask you here though, when you got that bike, so it's it, low mileage, sounds like it wasn't, yep. uh, it was in really good condition. Um, what was the setup on it? So did it have bags and a fairing um, and, and some other accessories? And uh, what did you end up doing to make it your own? The BMW Motorcycle Owners of America are continuing their free one-year membership promotion for Airhead 247 podcast listeners. And we've sweetened the offer. All new members will get our limited edition Airhead 247 t-shirt and decal, which you can check out on the website, airhead247.com. Now, we've got a limited supply of the T-shirts in various sizes, so the offer is limited to our availability. And the offer also only available to those in the continental United States. To qualify for the free one-year membership, you must either be new to the MOA or have not experienced the MOA as a member in the last three years. The free one-year membership includes 12 issues of the BMW Owner's News, an annual copy of the BMW Owner's Anonymous Book, full access to the MOA site, forums, flea market, and of course, all the money-saving discounts and roadside assistance plans. To join, visit 247.bmwmoa.org and use the code AIRHEADS247 to register for your free one-year membership. You can find that link on our website or in the description section of any of our podcasts. A free membership to the MOA is a quick and easy way to support our efforts here. And did we mention it's free? Well, glad to have the BMW MOA continuing their support here. So again, consider helping the cause by taking advantage of their generous offer. I know I would. Now, Back to our chat with Robert McIsaac. Oh, what did you end up doing to make it your own? Yeah, so it was uh, it was equipped as, I guess, a sort of state-of-the-art 1973 or 74 tour. It had a Wixom uh, handlebar-mounted fairing on it, a white one, uh, and it had white Wixom bags all uh, pinstriped with black. Um, and, of course, I got it, and it all was perfectly functional. It really was. But it's a little hard to imagine today, but back then when you looked at it, it already looked dated as compared to the 
the uh, better fairings. And so I was lusting after finding a better fairing, which I eventually did. I found a, a, a lightly used black one that I put on it, and it really did look good. And um, I couldn't afford real Krauser bags, but I found some Krauser knockoff bags for it. And that was really it. It was, at that point in my mind, set up to travel around the country, and that's exactly what we did with it. Yeah, you mentioned uh, a lot of your family vacations were on motorcycles. So were you still riding uh, with with your pops uh, back then after you got that, I I would imagine? Oh, yeah. Um, You know, his idea of a family vacation was to park my kid brother on the back of my motorcycle and let's go somewhere. Uh, and we did a lot of that until my big, uh, my little brother got really kind of too big for it. And eventually he wound up with his own Honda 404. And I met my, uh, my wife, uh, when I was a senior in high school. And, uh, so it was pretty quick after that, that, uh, my, my wife or girlfriend at the time replaced my little brother in the back, but we still did a lot of traveling together. Um, you know, every Labor Day weekend, we would head out from home in uh, central New Jersey and go up to the Finger Lakes region in New York and wander about uh, there in the wine country. I think they still run the Finger Lakes Rally at about that same time of year. Um, we still laugh about it because all of our friends would go with us, too. But in 1980, uh, Karen and I decided that was the weekend we were going to get married. So we spoiled everybody's holiday. <laughs> They had to come to our wedding, <laughs> but uh, yeah, just we had just great times out there, and we met great people doing some of those. Uh, you know, the, some of the people that I met back then, I still have a chance to talk to today, which is kind of special. And were some of the yeah? So you mentioned the Finger Lakes. Um, was it were those trips often centered around like a rally or a motorcycle gathering, or were some of them just hey? Let's just get on the bikes and, and take a toodle and go camping and just whichever way the wind blows. It was kind of a mix. Yeah. Uh, there we, uh, you know, we clearly had sort of the Labor Day weekend staked out. And there were other rallies that we liked to go to, uh, BMW MOA National being one of them, that uh, was clearly on the calendar. But, you know, it was not uncommon for me to get a call from my dad or a call from a buddy of mine and saying, hey, Yosin, you got a long weekend here. You want to you want to head out? And um, and we would. And uh, I think there were some amazingly interesting people that we met along the way when we did that and some crazy stories about, you know, little problems that we ran into and ways that we kind of worked our way out of it. Yeah. Maybe we can uh, talk about those as we get towards the end of the podcast with some of those uh, questions we always wind up with. So I have to ask you here then, Robert, uh, what was the fate of those particular bikes we've been referring to? So your dad's R90 and your R60, uh, what what happened with those bikes? Yeah, so my father, um, the year I graduated from college, so you'll catch the theme, he decided it was also time to buy a new motorcycle. Um, so he bought a 1980 Moto Guzzi Le Mans, which parked next to the uh, R90 for, geez, I guess for about 20 years they lived together. And then when my dad retired and moved to a smaller place, he sold that R90 uh, to somebody else who was in the central New Jersey area and uh, hopefully 
Um, they're taking care of it. Maybe listen to this podcast, and it's still on the road. Um, the Guzzi is in my garage. So oh, great. I know what happened to that. Yeah. Yeah. So have, the, you, um, have you been looking for that R90 uh, again? I mean, if it, if it popped up for sale, would you scoop it up? Oh, if it popped up for sale, I surely would. Uh, although I've been spending more time looking for the R60. <laughs> because, <laughs> yeah, um, I hear you. It, uh, well, because it was really mine, of course. Yeah, and yeah. The R60 had uh, sort of an unusual fate. I... Um, I had bought an R100 RT uh, when I uh, myself finished school, and so it lived with the R60 for a number of years. And then, unfortunately, I was out fooling around on a nice country road one day uh, with my father right behind me, and somebody came across the road in an SUV and hit me head on. And uh, it was the longest flight I've ever been on that didn't have drinks or uh, <laughs> that I got uh, miles for. But um, I was fortunate to walk away from that with only a, uh, a left hand that was broken in five places and a back where I had three fractured vertebrae. But I was walking and I was clearly fortunate. And um, that R100 gave its all. I mean, I was very fortunate. If I'd been riding anything else um, that didn't have a cylinder head that was out there sticking out to catch the front bumper of the SUV and allow me to escape, it would have been much worse. And so uh, I had young kids at the time, and I decided that I probably should sell the R60 and focus on some other things like my physical therapy. And I did, and I have been sorry about that since the day after I did it. Yeah, um, you had ironically, me- I, yeah. You oh, let me jump in there and say, yeah, you had mentioned, uh, and I might be jumping a little bit ahead on the timeline here, but I wanted to ask you with that accident um, that surely at some point gave you some pause. You might have had some th- second thoughts about riding, but then you also mentioned, and I don't know where this falls in on the timeline. Uh, you, you sort of put put the motorcycling hobby down for a while to focus on your family. So were those coincide yeah. that coincided right there? That is the cause and effect. Of yeah, that. exactly. Right. So the R60, I wound up selling to Stan Myers, uh, back in Doylestown and he then sold it to another customer of his. And, um, you know, there's a very active airheads community, uh, there in, um, in the Doylestown, Pennsylvania area still. And uh, Carl Myers, uh, whom I've known since we were both kids, is still there. And so every once in a while, I try and track it down. Uh, Sadly, you know, the Pennsylvania and New Jersey Departments of Transportation both told me that without a VIN, they couldn't do anything. And I've long ago lost the paperwork with the VIN on it. So I'm kind of dependent on, um, on others being able to point me to something that might be there, um, Tom Cutter and I laugh about it every once in a while. He says, you know, I probably still have your service records in my attic. If I ever get up there and find them, I'll let you know. So, uh, <laughs> there is still some hope that I'll find that bike. Yeah, I sold a um, R75-5, uh, actually traded traded it for a 92GS probably about 10 or 12 years ago. It was uh, a fellow in um, outside of Chicago, south of Chicago, a guy called Dale Gacky, which was an unusual last name, so I'm able to remember it. And I've kept an eye on that bike uh, popping up for sale for a while, too. And 
Well, it's funny when you mentioned the sale price of the, of the one you bought of your R60 back in 77, I think you said you paid $1,800 yep. for it. Uh, fast forward, of course, many years later, I was living in Ohio, or I'm sorry, I was living in Memphis, and I had purchased a short wheelbase slash five. Uh, I had had it for about two or three years. It was my first uh, airhead. <clears throat> I rode it back to Ohio where I went to college. I needed a rear tire, and Holt BMW was the dealer there, and they knew me pretty Perfect, well. Yeah. yeah, they knew me pretty well from uh, my college days there. They helped me very graciously keeping that slash five going. I mean, I was, I mean, I knew to put gas in it, Robert. That was about it. So <laughs> yeah. um, anyway, I rode it there all the way from Memphis. I needed a tire. I go into the shop. And Marvin uh, was the salesman there at the time. And uh, he said, oh, you know, we just got this uh, slash five in on a trade. Uh, the guy had heard this was uh, probably 1994, 95. It was right when the new boxers had come out, the new oil, oh, sure. oil yeah. heads. So this guy had traded in a long wheelbase slash five, windjammer fairing, Krauser bags. Holt had just repainted the toaster tank. Uh, which apparently, uh, I don't know what kind of condition it was in originally, but uh, the owner decided he was going to paint the tank uh, first and then uh, trade it in, I guess, whatever. So I'm looking at this thing, and it was a complete mirror opposite image of the Slash 5 I had. Mine was kind of ratted out, solo exhaust, aftermarket seat, aftermarket little MGO fairing on it. It didn't run too well. Speedometer was broken, but you know it, it worked. I'm looking at this one in nearly pristine condition, with uh, like twenty thousand miles on it. And so I said, Marvin, you know this guy just traded this in. Are you guys selling? He's oh yeah, it's on consignment. I said, well, how much? Nineteen hundred dollars. So yeah, so I. However much money I had on my credit card at that time, I was probably twenty one or. 21, 22. I said, Marvin, run this card. However much is on there, charge it. I'll be back in a couple of weeks and pay the difference. And I ended up having that motorcycle for almost 20 years. And kind of like you, ever since when I traded it, I've kind of kept a soft eye out for it ever since. I do miss it. Yes. Well, I, I think they work their way into your heart, right? Don't they? You know, I sold that R60 slash five to Stan. For the exact same price that I paid for it, and I put you know forty thousand miles on it in between, so it, I didn't feel like it was a bad deal on either the purchase or on the sale. But um, you know, from a nostalgic standpoint, I would just love to have that one back. Yeah, I, and I'm not afraid to admit I, I did get a little choked up when I loaded it in the trailer and uh, took it off and traded it. Uh, I, I was sad to see it go because it was such a big part of my life. I had taken so many trips on it, uh, but just seen so many places, done so many things, so many experiences. You know, it was just such a part of me. Um, but yeah. I, I had moved to Arkansas, and my thought at the time was, look, you know, I'm out here in the woods. I got creeks to cross. I got gravel roads. I got dirt roads. This bike's going to get beat up. And a GS seemed like a, a good idea. And I don't regret it. Don't, you know, don't get me wrong. Um, but yeah, it's just one of those things that I, if it, 
if I find it again, I, I would try to buy it back for sure. So I think you you and I are not alone. I, there's many of us <laughs> out there and many people listening. There's that bike that they sold that they're still trying to track down. Yeah, I think that's absolutely correct. Yeah. And it's funny that I finally gave up, or at least I gave up for now, and stumbled on an almost identical. Oh, yeah. 1970, a three and a half. R75 slash five, so big upgrade in, in terms of the engine that um, ironically uh, came from the next county over in New Jersey from where I grew up. And it is, uh, you know, it's funny because I hadn't been on a slash five in 30 years. I sat on this thing when I bought it. I just, you know, my fingers instinctively knew how to get the, uh, the petcocks on. I remembered, you know, the the, the headlight key, the, the, that thing that you push in on the top of the headlight to uh, recreate the 1950s and, and pass electricity through the system. That's right. And uh, it was just like all the controls were in exactly the right place. My thumbs knew exactly what to do. Uh, and uh, so we fell, we fell in love all over again. And so my... Uh, my black R seventy five. Well, it hasn't been out of the garage in about oh, I don't know eight hours. I had a nice ride on it this <laughs> afternoon. Good for you. Well, I want to talk about some of the other bikes you have here, but yeah. Um, before we do that, I want to go back, uh, sort of post accident uh, crash you were talking about there. And Robert, maybe maybe we can re- refer to these sort of as the uh, your dark years uh, when yeah. you, when you didn't have a motorcycle. And I, I just want to add. Curious because I've never had that experience where I sort of stepped away and then came back. During that time, obviously, you've got family, you've got work, other obligations. How often were you getting a pool, seeing a motorcycle, wanting to buy one, having to fight off the urge, or was it you just checked out and really didn't give it a second thought? I would say that you know it was more the latter. I really checked out and didn't give it a second thought. My my wife happens to also be my best friend, and she uh, had been really clear that you know you should do what you want to do. But we have two young children. There's a lot of stuff to focus on here right now. You're really lucky that you know after some PT everything came back. So how about giving it a rest for a little while? And I did. Um, and um, the irony of it is that the thing that got me back into motorcycling was actually my father, um, who late in his life um, suffered a number of physical ailments. He had uh, COPD, and so he wound up uh, having to uh, tote an oxygen tank around with him. And um, true story, he used to strap the oxygen tank on the back of the Moto Guzzi and run the tubes up through his helmet and go riding. That's my and boy. Out of- yeah. Yeah, running out of gas for him was had nothing to do with the local BP station. It was about <laughs> oxygen. Um, but he called me one day and he said, listen, you know, I, I've reached that point where I just cannot ride it anymore. And I know you're not riding, but um, I'd like you to take it and preserve it um, as a remembrance. And so I went up and I hadn't been riding, I guess it probably had been, 14 years between the accident and this particular conversation. I got up to his house. I hopped on the Guzzi, um, you know, snapped the ignition on, 
hit it off. The Delorto carburetors were just wonderful. The thing fired right up, and I rode it down the street. And I got to be honest, Darren, it was like I'd never stopped. It was like, oh, this this just all came flooding back. And um, at that point, our kids were grown and and off doing their own wonderful thing. And uh, so uh, Karen was like, you know, if if this is what you really want to do, you should do that. And so we gradually got back into it. The Guzzi went through a restoration. And then I began to feel the wonderlust for the 247s again. And um, we laugh about it because I think she's actually lost track of the number of them in the garage right now. So uh, she is the quintessential good sport about the whole thing. Well, let's, and again, we'll go through your motorcycles, but I think now's a good time. Uh, to maybe do a little compare and contrast. So, Boxer 2 Valve delivers a world-class learning experience with William Plam in their downloadable video series. Get tips and tricks from William's 40-plus years of motorcycle experience in a format you own, commercial-free, with access anywhere, anytime. Each video contains content that's applicable to mechanics of any level, whether you're just starting out or have some experience with the spanners, you'll be able to take away some valuable information to assist you in your project. I know I've mentioned this before, but when I reconditioned my R90S a few years back, I had these videos on my laptop on the workbench. I watched each service sequence before digging into the job. These videos gave me the confidence and assistance I needed to get the 90S back into shape and back on the road. You can find the full listing of downloadable videos for purchase at Boxer2Valve.com. That's the number two, Boxer2Valve.com. As promised, we're pleased to be joined by our friend William Plamp from Boxer2Valve. Our topic this week, the Venerable Slash 5 Series. Back on the line with William Plam at Boxer 2 Valve. And William, let's uh, let's go back in time a little bit today for our visit back to the initial run uh, of the 247. We're talking about, of course, the Slash 5 series of motorcycles uh, that came out, uh, well, really, I guess, kind of in 1969, sort of, but uh, really 1970 uh, through 1973. I owned a Slash 5 long wheelbase uh, 750 for almost 20 years. It was a great motorcycle. I loved it. Uh, I wish I still had it, but alas, I don't. And in discussing this uh, today, my memory of that bike and some of the idiosyncrasies and things uh, has faded a little bit, uh, but I don't want that to preclude us from talking about it. What I want to start out with today is just basically owning a Slash 5 it's still a popular bike. Um, you can still find them reasonably reasonably priced. Uh, there are always I always see some on the market. They for the most part they're pretty well maintained by their owners. That's one nice thing about buying a used BMW uh, as opposed to some other brands. Generally speaking, and I use generally uh, in quotes here. Uh, you've got more conscientious owners, uh, especially when it comes to classic BMWs, but. If you're out looking for a Slash 5, if you were out shopping for one, what are some of the things you would take into consideration, especially on an older bike uh, like that, knowing uh, it's, you know, 50 plus years old? And let me ask, ask that this way. Would you be, again, hypothetically, would you be looking for a bike 
that was more, let's say, unmodified and in stock form uh, and wanted to upgrade and maybe change some things uh, to your liking, knowing what you know? Or would might you be shopping for a bike that somebody's already addressed and upgraded and modified some things on it, whether it's suspension, uh, maybe adding fuses, uh, if you've got a first-year early bike, uh, what what kind of things are you thinking about if you're out shopping for a slash five? Well, they are somewhat plentiful, but a lot of times when you're looking for a particular model, you know, you're going to have a, a just a few to pick from, really. Um, always, though, so you have to kind of deal deal with the situation that each bike has. I, I think just in reality, but if 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 uh, given the choice. I always like to get a bike that is as original as possible and not been messed with or improved, so to speak, because, you know, then, and then, and then expect to go in and do that. So, uh, that's just from, from my point of view, if I, I, I like, I like them just like the way that they have aged and then go in and, and, and half the fun is really fixing it up and working on it. Um, and then, of course, the icing on the cake is to go out and be able to ride it. But um, I think that almost the rougher the better. And uh, from that standpoint, and then just be, and then get it for the best price you can, and then uh, be prepared to invest some time and some money in fixing it up. That's how I would approach it. Were there particular? I, I can't think of any offhand. I mean, I mentioned the fuses. Uh, the, apparently the early bikes, I don't have any firsthand knowledge of this, but apparently the first year model bikes were not fused, meaning so, you yeah, know, they, they had, a, they had a, you have the terminal 30, which is the battery plus goes from, you know, basically from the battery into the headlight and then powers everything through the switches. It's just in a simplified manner. And they didn't have a fuse in there. So it was a, a recall of sorts to uh, install those. And I, th- I think that it's likely that, that a very, very, very high percentage of those early bikes got repaired. Probably so. Before they even got to the dealership or got done at the dealership. And, and, and really, it's pretty rare to, to find one. But easy enough to see, it's like a Bakelite uh, fuse holder, usually, and it's uh, just got a you know red wire going in and coming out, and it's in the headlight bucket. So that's if you can look at a bike and you can pop the headlight open um, if it's got that. That's cool, but that's not that's not a not a reason to buy or not buy a bike because if it's got it, you, even after you bought it, you, okay, cool. You don't need and if it needs one, then it's easy enough to put in, and it's we're talking about like less than ten bucks to do it. So yeah. It's not like, Deal breaker, by any means. No, no, that's a pretty simple thing to do. And again, I, as I mentioned, uh, it's been years since I've owned my bike, and uh, over the my term of ownership, I've changed and replaced, up, updated, upgraded, did a lot of things. Of course, um, I, I were there, uh, and again, we mentioned the fuses there, but were there any sort of inherent issues with the Slash Five series that? were addressed with service bulletins over the years, any big ones that stick out or was it just your typical bike that had sort of teething processes, uh, that 
that owners would go through and incremental repairs and, and updates. I don't, I don't recall there being sort of one big sort of uh, issue with it. There, there, there really wasn't. They, they, they got it pretty squared away, I think, with that series. I mean, there's always going to be something. You, sometimes you have problems with the, 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 the switches are a little bit funky, but they're available now in uh, reproduction. The, the, this, the switch in the headlight, uh, those things, you know, just with age, fail, and that's just kind of to be expected. Uh, there's a, a, a shaft that uh, where the idler gear for the Kickstarter um, sits inside the gearbox, and sometimes those sort of get loose, and um, there's ways to repair that. Um, the gearboxes were pretty much the same as they used in the pre-69 models, R60, R50, slash 2, all, et cetera. So that was pretty much like there's really very little difference uh, other than the, the, the outer casting, but the mechanism inside is very similar. So it, they called on very um, well-known and tested technologies there. Um, they were, I think, very much uh, looking to um, improve the electrics. The starter motor was kind of a first on the on. It was a first for BMW to have a starter motor, and it's really a, a, a downsized motor out of automotive industry. So they they were originally Bosch. They would fail sometimes. You'd have to rebuild them, but nowadays you can put the uh, newer version starters in that were used up until the cease of production, and they they interchange. So that's a nice thing. A lot of the interchangeability. You've got some issues with the ignition or the uh, ignition system. Yeah, you know the, there are ways of Replacing that, um, you can leave it stock. It works fine. We might need a new mechanism or point condenser, that sort of thing. But there's also electronic ignitions that are available. And the charging system always was a little bit of an Achilles heel because it spins at um, crankshaft speed. So in order for it to really put out any power, you have to have some RPM going into the uh, motors to, to charge the battery. But there's also all kinds of stuff you can upgrade there. So Really, those are some of the things that uh, I think can cause problems. Other than that, it's uh, really maintenance and and uh, a joy to work on and even a bigger joy to ride. So the Slash 5, I would categorize sort of uh, as the flagship uh, of, the, of that particular model run, obviously the bigger engine, um, and it had, I guess, the, the, the big differences were with those uh, – bikes were essentially the displacement and the carburetors. Um, between the 50, the 60, and the 75, you had CV carburetors on the 750, uh, and of course you had the bigger displacement. Were there really any other major differences between those models uh, aside from those two things? There weren't really uh, any, any major differences. The only thing is that the engine blocks are slightly different. Um, that's why you... You can install, for example, a big bore kit on the R75 motor, but not on the R50, R60 motor. So the, the, uh, the, the way that the block was machined for the cylinders was totally different. It has a different uh, opening in the block. But uh, other than that, hmm. yeah, there was really – there was very little – no other real differences between the, the engine block machining and the carburetors and, uh, of course, the displacement. 
And I think the way, reason why they had the different models is because in Germany or in Europe, European countries at the, at the time, you had different uh, horsepower uh, levels that directly affected which uh, driver's license you needed to operate the motorcycle and also affected your uh, insurance and registration costs. So getting an R50 as opposed to an R75 was a, maybe a few hundred marks cheaper but over a period of time, it would save you money, too, because it was less less expensive to operate. Interesting, yeah. I, I think that, that, that came about and it all, you know, why why they just, like, make the R75 and call it a day? But I think that's the reason why they did it that way. Okay, good. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that, because I've often wondered what, why the differences. I mean, yeah, you're. I don't know what the price lists were on the bikes back then. I, I don't have one in front of me. Uh, but, you know, you're not talking thousands of dollars um back then it was you know hundreds of dollars difference right uh so and you know you're getting the the bike uh, an r50 or an r60 obviously not as quick uh i didn't know the the block was different that's that's news to me and good to know i and it sounds like you're mentioning that was probably more of a european consideration maybe um with the, you mentioned the different licensing in some places uh, around the world, maybe you couldn't even have a 750 uh, CC motorcycle. Uh, although I don't know how many markets, uh, major markets that would have been a consideration in. But yeah, why would, I mean, it's not like you buy an R50 and it's, you know, noticeably smaller or easier to ride or anything than a 750. It's just uh, a less power. That, that's really the only difference in a couple hundred bucks cheaper. But then at the same time, you seem, uh, again, w mentioning the European market, uh, this is, again, just something maybe I'm noticing or have noticed over the years. It seemed a lot more of the authority bikes uh, in uh, Germany, Switzerland, France, where they were using those. They did opt for the smaller displacement motor. Do you know why that was a preference on the authority uh, bikes? I I really could only speculate that it was a, a function of, of cost. Yeah. And that they, you know, they, they probably had to go through a bid system, like just like happens here in the U.S., yeah. where they you'd have, get a certain price and they made a very attractive deal because I think Largely throughout the world, uh, people wanted the larger displacement motor, so they could maybe that was a way for them to off some of those other ones. I don't know. Something yeah, like no, that down yeah, that totally makes sense. I I just wonder if you had any insight on that because it does seem, you know, you find those authority bikes. Uh, they always were the smaller displacement uh, motors, uh, and, and along those lines, again, we're talking about. You know, there maybe there's some folks out there listening who are thinking about buying a slash five, or they're just getting in wanting to get into their airhead ownership and want to consider one of these bikes is an R50 or an R60 still a viable bike uh, to ride, uh, to own and drive knowing that it's a little underpowered. I mean, would you, uh, let me ask, ask it this way, all things being equal, if you saw a nice toaster tank R60 fat slash five and, and Monza blue, uh, and next to it was a, a slash five that maybe had been, let's say, I know your penchant for wanting one that's more original. Uh, would would you buy a nice original slash five R60 uh, 
uh, as opposed to maybe a more modified R75? Is there, I guess really what I'm trying to ask is, does that smaller motor, does that make a big difference to you personally as a rider? Is that something somebody should really consider? You know, I think that the, the R60 is an awesome, awesome motor. And those, the, the carburetors are simple, but they, they, they work okay. And that's, that's, that's a great bike because, you know, when you're dealing with a bike that's that old at this point, you know, I think performance is going to be less of a, yeah. of a factor. It's, it's the cool factor. It's, it's the nostalgic factor. And, you know, that's not something you need to go out and, 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 and ride fast or anything like that. It's very adequate. It's a very nice smooth running motor, the R60. I don't know if the R50s really ever made it to the U.S. I don't remember. I kind of think that they didn't because I think that that was just like, and in fact, I think the R50 didn't have a starter motor, if I remember correctly. You had to kickstart those. Oh, wow. Okay. They did. They took everything they could to make it, make it less expensive. (laughs) Wheels option. Yeah. Wheels optional. Exactly. (laughs) Mirror is optional too. Uh, (laughs) No, it might've been actually. Uh, in reality, but, uh, you know, our sixties are cool. I've had a bunch of them over the years, ridden a bunch of them and they're, they're, they're neat. And, uh, they make enough power to have fun on. That's all it's about. Could you, is, could you swap, uh, a CV carb on an R to an R60? You, you would have to change the cylinder head. Re- oh, 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 that's okay. Yeah. Yeah. The spigot. I mean, then you, if you, yeah, the 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 way that the um, the whole intake, the way the carburetor attaches to the cylinder head is completely different, different diameter, um, different different mechanism altogether. So you'd have to swap out cylinder heads. Okay, all right. Yeah, I've often wondered that. I mean, it and it's uh, not going to give you any real advantage. Either. No, no, I guess not. Is it really? You're you're exactly right. Okay, well, fair enough. I'd often wondered that, and that answers that question. Okay, also with the Slash 5 series, you've got the short wheelbase, long wheelbase. Uh, we won't uh, go through the whole short wheelbase handling sort of issues and front suspension. That We've covered that topic a lot in other episodes, um, unless you want to say something about it. But uh, short wheelbase versus long wheelbase, does that two inches in the rear swing arm make that big of a difference yeah apparently so it uh when you ride a short wheelbase slash five and then you jump on a slash six or it doesn't because you don't even have to go as far as like a a long wheelbase slash five because you get like a slash six or slash seven those are basically all the longer wheelbase as in comparison you you do notice that the the short wheelbase is a, a little quicker steering, a little more flickable, in a way, and that the the, the longer wheelbase um, slow a little more subdued, and it is noticeable. And that's it, anybody who's into these bikes, you you, you can you can really notice it um, when you you ride them kind of back to back. I think that the uh, the short wheelbase is fine. There's nothing wrong with it at all it just did have some kind of uh at higher speeds it could get into a wobble and this would be it made worse if uh, for example the front suspension had some wear wasn't wasn't dialed in correctly or the the steering head bearings 
and the longer wheelbase kind of helps to um, straighten things out, if you will. But they're both cool. Get a short wheelbase, great bike. Um, just you know, obey the speed limits. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, I was talking. I recently had a conversation uh, with Rick Jones at Motorrad Electric about this, uh, the whole short and, and long wheelbase sort of uh, debate, as it were. Not necessarily a debate, but his his take on it. And I thought this was interesting. Not having really been around, uh, let's put it this way, I was not of riding age. Uh, in in the early 70s, although I was uh, trotting around the earth. Um, his observation was, okay, you've got a shorter wheelbase motorcycle uh, that had just been introduced uh, the first couple years of it. And the American market and what how Americans rode and what they expected and did with their motorcycles arguably were a lot different than what was happening in Europe. So his contention was, okay, uh, here in the States, you've got people who are doing longer distance touring. They're putting on Wixom trunks. They're putting on handlebar mounted uh, fairings. Uh, they've got people, Americans tend to be heavier. Uh, so if you've got a heavier passenger on the back, you know, his whole contention was the way Americans were riding the motorcycles might have manifested some of these issues with the short wheelbase more so than in Europe. Does that sound crazy? No, it doesn't sound crazy at all. In fact, that, that's a really brilliant observation. I never really put it into that perspective, but it's very, very true that they uh, it could have been the, the, the reason why they made that change. Do you have Do you have a preference? Uh, it sounds like you'd... you'd sort of go towards uh, uh, like a 72 short wheelbase slash five if you had your druthers? Yeah, I, I mean, that would be, would be fine because I, I would always ride it within, within you know, the, the motorcycle's ability, and I think it would, would be just fine. And the, the, the uh, long wheelbase slash five anyway is, is a kind of a rarity to get a real one, and it has a certain amount of collector's value and that 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 add-on value is not really justifiable, in my opinion. Yeah. Now, am I correct in remembering? Did didn't you all restore uh, a short wheelbase slash five recently for what is it, the meltdown or whatever that thing is? Yeah, we 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 did that one, and we've done a couple of them, and we've we've got another one kind of in the rafters, ready to ready to go too. So. Yeah, we've done a couple of those before. Yeah, that the one. Uh, w what is that event called again? Yeah, that's the meltdown, and that that uh, happens every year here in Hendersonville, North Carolina. Last year it was at the airport, our international airport in Hendersonville. I'm just okay, and the melt the meltdown it's being actually, it's, the meltdown is a is a vintage motorcycle show. It's definitely worth going to. It's usually in the first part of April. And the idea being meltdown, you're coming out of winter into spring. Exactly. That's okay. exactly what, yeah. It's got nothing to do with nuclear. <laughs> and I, so I guess it was last year or the year before you all had donated or uh, put up for auction for raffle. Uh, it was yep. a, was it a 70 or a 71? 750? I want to say it was a 70, 
70, oh, 71, I think it was a 71. And that hap- that's my favorite sort of con- uh, configuration on that bike, the one you did. Short wheelbase, yeah. 750, silver, blue pinstripes. Uh, that's just r- really a, a great look uh, for that era. That's my favorite one uh, that came out of that whole model run. Yeah, that is that was that was a beautiful motorcycle. Yeah, what uh, found I, a good home, I think too. That's so. good. So I mean, we don't need to go into an exhaustive uh, discussion on this, but you know, when you when you did that when you did that bike, did you go down to the frame uh, and sort of frame off, or what was the? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's a, that's usually kind of the the what we do. Yeah, that was that was down to the frame, uh, paint off and. Um, yeah, from every nut and bolt was re- replaced or replated, definitely. Now, when you're doing something like that, knowing that sort of your, it's your project, uh, you're doing it how you want. Uh, I imagine you were keeping that pretty original and pretty stock. Do you recall were there any sort of aftermarket or modifications you did to that, or did you just sort of put it back using as many original parts and, and components as possible that bike was was completely um put back to stock everything charging system ignition system um everything was 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 uh, original i think the only thing that was more modern than original was the starter motor okay all right yeah, and there's you know. and the last thing on this i'm just curious since we're sort of talking about this are there, I, I know the answer to this question, but I, I didn't make any notes and I can't think of them off the top of my head, but with the Slash 5, you can sort of, if you wanted to, I think with a number of things, and the, I guess maybe an example here might be the rocker arm configuration or some other things, you can use later model, some later model Slash 6 or updated components to the Slash 6 run those can be installed on a slash five. I want to say maybe rocker arms might uh, have been uh, assembly might have been one. Uh, is, is that correct? And are there other ones? Yeah, I think that there's a, a whole lot of stuff you could change over. Yeah. As far as rocker arms go, the original uh, rocker arms, if I remember correctly, they just had like uh, brass um, bushings, um, and then the slash six they went needle bearing. The needle bearings. And I think you're right. I think you can you could put the needle bearing version onto a slash five. I'm pretty sure you can do that. Um, basically, you could theoretically take the four speed gearbox out and put the five speed in on a slash. You know, you, you can swap those out. Um, you, you know, you you could change the forks and put a disc on there if you wanted to. Mm-hmm. Um, there's like a, a lot of. You, a lot of the parts are interchangeable, and if you really wanted to, you could you could even put a like an '84 swing arm and final drive on there. Yeah, it, that, yeah, that, I'm glad you mentioned that. Oh, that, all that stuff. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. And again, I'm uh, referencing a conversation I had with Rick Jones recently. Uh, that's something I think he did on his short wheelbase was he put on uh, a later model uh, sort of cush drive swing arm and drive shaft, and he said it was a nice improvement. Yeah, yeah, and it'll give you that longer wheelbase too. At the same time. Yep. And so, yeah, there's really almost no limit to the parts interchangeability. It makes it makes it really fascinating. 
if you want to deviate from the original design and just make like a, a cool motorcycle like function better, there's all kinds of options you can do there. And uh, you could start with a with a slash five, and um, find the parts to convert it into something very unique, very personal. All right, William. Well, as I mentioned, uh, I was a slash five owner for a number of years. Uh, I, I do miss it. Um, I don't know that I'll be buying one anytime soon, but I, I have, like I said, that uh, silver one with the big tank you guys did was just really a looker. Uh, that's uh, that's one of my, I think, uh, Mount Rushmore uh, 247s. That was just a remarkable job you did with that. And again, we should mention that rally that's down there. Uh, folks are planning maybe a springtime uh, getaway. Here we are in the throw, currently in the throes of winter. Uh, that's in Hendersonville, not far from you guys, I guess, right? We're we're in Hendersonville. Yeah. It's actually, it's it's uh, it's at the airport, and it's literally, gosh, I, less than two miles away. Oh wow! Okay. Yeah. All right. So, and come visit us and say we'll give you the, give you the tour around our facility. Yeah, I was just going to ask. So yeah, if somebody was down that way. Uh, I mean, I don't even know. Do you guys have a little, small little showroom uh, sort of set up there, or what? What's the deal? Yeah, we've got a we've got a we've got a showroom. We can we can offer to sell parts. We there's always a, a soda or a cup of coffee waiting for you too, and uh, we'd like to show you our warehouse and our workshop, which we recently totally re- redid our workshop. It's it's looking pretty cool. Oh wow! Yeah, I bet that's nice. Nickel tour. I bet yeah. that's nice. Uh, I could keep going on with the questions here, but I promise this will be the last one. And I just thought of this. So when you moved to North Carolina, Hendersonville, were there Airhead or, for our purposes, I guess, let's just keep it to that, but I'm sure there are other BMW riders. But are I guess were there or are there Airhead owners who were just like, holy cow, I can't believe uh, I can drive five miles and buy parts. I don't have to mail order that stuff anymore. I mean, what a treat yeah, if you were living there. And then all of a sudden, one of the biggest parts distributors uh, and suppliers moves in uh, to your hometown. You know, that happened many, many, many times. There's a lot of lot of folks who come to uh, visit us regularly, and we always love to have folks visit us. And, um, yeah, but that, that you, you nailed it. That happened a lot. Yeah. But what a what a treat that would be to to be so close. I mean, everybody uh, nearly is always you know, make, just the concept of going to a store to buy uh, airhead parts seems really uh, strange and unique. But for those who are, are real <laughs> real close to you, what a treat to be able to come uh, come just directly to the source. Yeah, it, yeah, definitely. All right, William. Well, look, as always, a pleasure chatting with you. Uh, we'll look forward to catching up with you down the road again sometime soon. Yeah, I look forward to that. Thanks so much. You have a good one. As always, really enjoy our chats with William. Be sure to check out Boxer Two Valve's YouTube page. They've teased some new content recently that I'm excited to see, so stay tuned for that. Now back to our final segment with Robert McIsaac. Well, let's, and again, we'll go through your motorcycles, but I think now's a good time uh, to maybe do a little compare and contrast. So you're, sure. you're familiar with the Guzzi. Uh, I had, yeah. I had an Eldorado, 
73 El Dorado police bike with uh, drum brakes. Um, but it's, uh, it was, I think, a decommissioned uh, police motorcycle at one time. Did not have the siren. But uh, you're, most folks are familiar with those El Dorados. It really was kind of a, I always thought of it as a cross between, especially that El Dorado, a cross between a Harley and a BMW. Uh, you had the, mm-hmm. the European sort of engineering and design aesthetic to it, but those Eldorados had floorboards, foot shifters, the big tombstone, uh, police-style fairing, wide handlebars. So it rode and sort of felt like a Harley in that regard, but at the same time, you had those European sensibilities with a number of other aspects of the motorcycle. So I'm familiar with the the Guzzi a little bit. It didn't have a long tenure in my garage, but as somebody who owns both, what what do you see as some of the similarities and differences uh, in those brands? Yeah, that's a great question. I would say that um, you know this particular Guzzi is a 1980 Le Mans. It is a U.S. market uh, version of the Le Mans II that was sold in Europe and in other places as an 850. Uh, in the states where we had the uh, air pollution rules that were getting more and more restrictive, and Americans had this idea that there was no replacement for displacement, so voila, you wind up with a thousand cc engine stuffed in it. It uh, would have been a contemporary of an R100s or a Ducati Desmo, um, and this particular bike actually was set up and raced in the Battle of the Twins at Daytona in 1981. So oh, wow. it actually got a racing pedigree. <laughs> yeah, everything, all the all the drain plugs are still drilled for uh, for the wire, so yeah. you can't lose them if, on the straights. Um, I would say that uh, the Italian motorcycle clearly is not as well engineered. Or designed as the as the uh, as the BMWs were, you know. There are when you get into them, you find there are just things where you know it's like, well, not completely clear they thought that one through, or there was clearly some cost cutting that was taking place here. Many many times when I look at some of the stuff on the BMWs, it's like, well, that's clearly over engineered. Um, uh, not a reaction you get on the Guzzi stuff. I think that the um, the Guzzi. Uh, when you when you deal with all of the controls and the cockpit, um, there's no particular obvious order in which things were done. Um, so it, it, it's like the switch looks good here. I guess we'll put it there. <laughs> I, I always get the sense that on the on the BMWs uh, that there was some real ergonomic thought to how some of those things were laid out, and um, and so I think you just find that there is a difference in the fit and finish and quality, no doubt. Um, uh, having ridden both of them, uh, you know, uh, I would say that similar in many ways in terms of how they ride and handle, I would say the Guzzi, um, maybe because it's got a smaller front wheel um, than would have been on the contemporary BMWs, it feels crisper on turn-in. Uh, I think that it's very similar in terms of the power. Both it and the R100S had the same horsepower ratings back when they were new 44 years ago. Um, the Goose um, feels stronger, I would say, in the mid-range. It just pulls like a horse. Um, and it, they're they're actually brilliant. I, I, I now understand why my dad enjoyed having both of them. 
Um, and I can kind of understand when he got to a point of saying he could only have one motorcycle. Was it going to be a, a, a touring bike set up the, the way the uh, R90 was or the sport bike the way the Guzzi was? I, I understand why he did what he did. He also made another really interesting modification to it. So it is one of, uh, I believe, 257 uh, Moto Guzzi Le Mans's that were sold that way in the States. He, um, along the way, found that folding himself up and tucking in behind a cafe fairing was getting less and less comfortable. And so he took the uh, Le Mans fairing off and put a, uh, a Moto Guzzi SP fairing on. So the SP would have been the contemporary of the RS. Yeah, And, and so I have this... Yeah, yeah, let me jump in there and say... They, when that SP, now, of course, I was a kid when those motors, when the SP came out, but looking back on it historically, uh, I want to say it was maybe 78 or 79 year model when the SP came out. It was an unapologetic copy of the RS. I mean, even down to the paint color. Uh, yeah, exactly right. You know? Exactly right. Yeah. Well, and, and it, it's funny you say that because with my Guzzi, if you look and you squint at it, it's red, of course, uh, as all good Italian motorcycles should be. But um, the way that they did the paint uh, on the tank, it actually has a black panel on the very bottom of it. And if you look at it, you say, wait a minute, that looks an awful lot like an R65 LS. Um, so, yes, I think they were clearly copying what Hans and friends were doing up in Munich. Yeah, I, yeah, I agree. Uh, I, and again, I'm not a guziologist by any stretch of the imagination. And some of you out there may, may be saying, well, it, it had nothing to do with the RS. But you can just sort of, you know, that was sort of, let's put it this way, that might have been their answer to the RS because it really was set up as a touring bike. And then uh, with that uh, sort of similar blue, silver blue color they did, uh, there, were, there were some similarities there. So, okay, that's interesting. So he put... Getting back to that, he took off the sort of S-style fairing on the Le Mans and put the SP fairing on it. He did. And, um, you know, it is a, uh, it's a very different fairing layout when you actually get accustomed to it. It, it is handlebar mounted as opposed to frame mounted. Oh, okay. But uh, it is just a fantastic fairing for cold weather riding. And, of course, the Guzzi with the cylinders arrayed the way they are, it's offering you uh, about as close as you're going to get the circulated heat in the winter. Yeah. Um, so it is a um, it's a really interesting combination. My dad uh, was an Air Force mechanic in his early years, and so he was he had a little bit of MacGyver going on with him in terms of fixing stuff and making things on his own. And so I still am finding things that he did, and I kind of smile <laughs> at it because it's, That's it's sort of this legacy. It was like this. Uh, like this thing he was waiting for somebody to wait 40 years for them to find. Well, I'd love to see some old, old photos of, uh, of him or the two of you on those motorcycles. I bet that's neat. So uh, you still have got that bike. Uh, what I'm just curious, what's the wind buffeting like with that SP fairing? Have you had to battle that? It is fascinating because it is great. It really? just works well. Yeah. And it's, it's it's nowhere near as refined, and it's clearly not as wind tunnel tested as the R100 RS fairing was. Uh, 
And and yet it just seems to work well. It's one of those things you look at it and you go, I, I don't really understand why this works the way it does, but by golly, it does. So just go with it. Yeah, yeah. Why not? All right. Uh, let's go on to some other bikes uh, in the garage. And I think it's fair to say you've got a, a thing for the RS, uh, as we've been talking yeah. about. Uh, and let's maybe, I, I think this is probably the, I would consider it the cream of the crop and what you've got in the garage currently. And uh, you might be leaning that way as well. We've been talking about the 77 RS. So you've got one and it's got quite a backstory. So let's go through that. It does. Um, I fell in love with the RS about a nanosecond after they were introduced um, <laughs> in the market. And uh, I lived up in North Jersey at the time. And so the local dealership was a place called Sleegers Forbes. And I kind of knew who Hank Sleegers was. And there was this Forbes guy. I didn't know who he was. And, well, it turns out it was Malcolm Forbes, um, the guy behind Forbes magazine. And uh, clearly with money to burn and an interest in motorcycles, Malcolm decided that buying into a dealership would be the right answer. And so he did. And so he took delivery on a lot of things that came through and kept them over at his uh, at his mansion in Bedminster. And um, he would show up at the dealership periodically. And I would show up, too. I never met him there, uh, but I would show up to buy parts for that R60. And when the RS came out, it was just one of those things that was both stunning, and they had it on one of those rotating uh stage oh my gosh three type deals yeah and you put it into context and that motorcycle was introduced at about the same time that star wars as a movie came out that's right and and there were a lot of people at that point in time who said it looked like that motorcycles uh had come from star wars because it was just so different than anything else and I can just imagine I it on that on that rotating platform, Robert. I mean, yeah. not just looking at it statically, you know, parked was one thing, but now they've got the damn thing spinning in front of you. I mean, it was probably all you could do to contain yourself. Oh, it was just it was just unbelievable. Yeah. And um but it was also unbelievably expensive, <laughs> to be clear. Yeah. And, and so so, you know, it, 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 lust was, was I suppose, one reaction, and then reality checked in. Yeah. Uh, so it was a couple of years later, I went out to the uh, to the MOA National, which was in Minnesota that year with a friend of mine. And uh, out there, they uh, had, had introduced a series of new BMWs, and it was the first time I saw the the red smoked paint scheme that was on uh, the R100S and the R100RS and the RT. And I thought, you know, if I could ever get me an RS, I absolutely would. And um, it was much later. It was actually just a couple of years ago. I was looking for uh, something, and I stumbled onto uh, an ad. A guy was selling out in California a 1977 R100RS. It had a really interesting history of preservation, then restoration, but the bike was originally owned by Malcolm Forbes. And there is a pretty good chance that the one that's in my garage is actually the same one that was on the rotisserie yeah. back then, because it is a non-CFO 
bike, meaning it's one of the first 200 that were brought into this country with the, the big valves. And, um, you know, it's, it's a fascinating motorcycle to be around because it, uh, you, when you fire those up, uh, it sounds for all the world like one of the, uh, the old but heavy breathing Porsche 911s, the airhead or air cooled 911s. It's, uh, yeah, for me, it's the kind of thing that it just caused little hairs on the back of my neck to stand up. <laughs> so to me, it's actually just fun to go out there and, and look at her and, uh, and just realize, you know, that I, I have no proof that, that, uh, that uh, Malcolm's friends ever rode with him. So I'm not sure that Liz Taylor was ever on the bike, but um, the fact that it has this really interesting history, uh, I think is just really cool. And it was, it was also an interesting story that the the guy I bought it from in California, I think he was afraid of it. He had bought it from somebody who was the second owner, uh, actually technically the third owner in New Jersey. And he had ridden it all around the country and then did a, a, a full restoration of the bike because he and his brother were going to go on a long-distance tour and recreate some moments of their youth. And his brother sadly and very unexpectedly passed away. And so he sold his his dream RS so he could put the money into restoring his brother's R75-5. And I, so... I just I just felt that there was this great story about this motorcycle that has been passed from generation to generation and from caretaker to caretaker and at least for the moment um, is with me and uh, and I just I just love telling the story and riding the bike it's it's the next one to get out of the barn this week that's great so I know you're pretty familiar with the, all the details of those first year models especially. Uh, the non-CFO bikes, first couple hundred. In fact, when we were at Todd's event, uh, I guess it was number one uh, that mm-hmm. th- that uh, the first bike uh, that Todd uh, took uh, ownership of uh, at that rally, uh, and which is a whole other story. We may or not get not get to it. But the reason I'm asking that is this one you purchased. What sort of now you've lived with it for how long have you had it? By the way, now. I've had it for almost three years. Okay, so I imagine uh, when you when it came, you, did you go out and buy it or did you have it shipped? I had it shipped. Okay, uh, in the middle of winter, in the middle of a pandemic. Oh so God! Oh, oh, okay. Part. All right. So when you got the bike, uh, I, and I'm sure, of course, you saw photos. I'm sure you did your mm-hmm. research and all that kind of stuff. Uh, was there anything on there that you thought, okay, wait a minute, I wasn't expecting this, or this isn't correct, or gosh, you know, they missed this? Were, were, what was your overall impression when you finally got it in the garage? Well, when I got it in the garage, my overall reflection was uh, that I clearly had soloed under a lucky star. That <laughs> the, bike, the bike was better in every possible way. Oh, great. I- Imagined. Great. Um, it was stunning. Now that doesn't mean it was perfect. Yeah. Um, you know, I think one of the interesting things is that you know it is you know nearly fifty years old at this point. It's forty-seven years old, so forty-four years old when I bought it. Um, it had been through a major restoration, uh, so it had been repainted. The paint came from Holt, Ken Holt, out in Ohio. That's all you can uh, ask for there. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, everything had been done right. Uh, 
But uh, it turned out we discovered that an error had been made somewhere along the way. And I don't know whether it was in the restoration process or it was in the manufacturing process, but we had a really unfortunate episode where I hit the horn. There was a, oh, that, no. that particular, yes, exactly. It's not fused, <laughs> and it fried the main wiring harness. Oh, Lord. Yeah. So that's the bad news. The good news is that we called uh, EME out in Colorado and, and said, you know, we need a wiring harness for this thing, expecting them to say, well, you know, that's like made of unobtainium or something. And their reaction was, great, how many do you want? Yeah, yeah, um, right. So I was like, one will do. And um, so we got that put in and put back together. And the only thing that the bike needs at this point is that, uh, you know, even the restoration at this point happened 18 years ago. And it has not been used very much in those 18 years. And the pushrod tube seals uh, are probably going to have to be replaced. No, that's nothing. You know, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I think that one of the things to remember about these bikes is that they were made to be ridden. They're not made to be pieces of furniture. Yeah. And so you got to get them out and ride them. Yeah, they'll dry out. Uh, They will dry out. So I have a checklist. I keep track of what got ridden when. And it's when I say it's somebody's turn to get out of the garage, it means it's somebody's turn to get their oil stirred and get the gas. (laughs) Cleaned out, and um, you know they just they need to be ridden. They can't sit. So we could I could talk about this bike with you for days. I had I also had a seventy seven uh, RS that was restored. It was a CFO, uh, but Leo Goff, uh, who oh, met, yeah. you, many folks know, did the restoration on that years ago. They converted it uh, to a forty millimeter uh, exhaust and. Uh, it was a it was a great bike. I really enjoyed it. Unfortunately, I, now I can't blame Leo for this. Whoever painted it, the the paint color and everything was good, but it was a wafer thin paint job. I mean, I could look at that thing or just oh. lightly brush up against it and seem like I'd chip chip the tank. But uh, anyway, so I'm familiar with that bike. I really thoroughly enjoyed mine. I had it for a number of years. Um, but uh, the last thing I want to ask you on that is, so where is that in the serial number? What, what number is it? Oh, it's number 44. Wow. Okay. Which is funny in that community because that's actually one of the first questions people ask. Oh, oh yeah. Yeah. What number is it? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, I've got a number of, uh, people that I know in the community are like, oh, I got number 45 or I remember seeing 44 when it was at some rally in Pennsylvania years ago. I was like, all right, yeah, absolutely. The bike's more famous than I am, clearly. <laughs> that's exactly right. Well, uh, that's a great story. I, I didn't know that was, uh, we can call that a recent purchase. So, uh, I'm glad, yeah. glad to hear that went well. And, uh, Duly noted on the horns, uh, the fuse, uh, fuse or relay. You got to have that there. Um, all right. Yeah. So you've got two other RSs, and I guess a couple of the posts and things I've seen on Facebook here recently, keeping up with you. Uh, the eighty-two, I think I've seen more uh, photos of than uh, the other one you have. But the eighty-two is a smoke red, and then you've also got a seventy-nine as well, right? Yes. So t- I do. Tell me about those uh, in whatever order you'd like to. Yeah, so the 82 was actually the first RS that I bought, and it was sort of uh, answering the question in 1979, what am I going to do? 
So, you know, it took me until 2012 to actually buy that bike. And um, it's kind of funny because I saw it uh, on eBay in Minnesota, uh, and the guy was selling it, and it was it seemed like a decent price. But I looked at the pictures and went, oh, my goodness. I mean, that color has just called my name for as long as they've been painting them that way. And I looked at one of the pictures, and it had a Kickstarter. I thought, oh, my goodness, it's a Euro delivery bike. And so that one uh, I bought sight unseen, uh, you know, lots of pictures and startup videos, but it also had a fascinating story. Um, The guy who owned it that I bought it from was a member of the Volvo Club in Minneapolis. Of course, there's a lot of Volvos out there. And he uh, he had actually bought the bike at auction from uh, the Veterans Hospital in St. Paul. And it had been donated to them by the family of the gentleman who owned the bike originally. And uh, it had been sitting in a barn for uh, 25 or so years. And the Volvo guy bought it, brought it home, got everything cleaned up, clearly did a nice job getting things running again and whatnot. And so he sold it to me. And it was a Euro delivery bike. Um Turned out the story on that one was that it was originally bought at a BMW dealership in Mannheim, West Germany. And I know that because it still has the Mannheim dealership tags or stickers on the on the battery covers. And it was apparently owned by a uh, U.S. Army officer that was stationed in West Germany. And he rode it around there and then took it back to the States. And it has parking stickers on the fork leg from Fort Rucker, Alabama. And so from that, we know he was a helicopter pilot. Oh, okay. Um, so he he did both two- and three-dimensional flying, apparently. <laughs> and, uh, and so he rode it, according to the odometer at the time I bought it, 6,700 miles, and then it went into the barn and disappeared for a quarter of a century. And um, when it came out, uh, it, it clearly needed work when I got it. I had it shipped back here. A good friend of mine, uh, Pete Bombar, uh, owner of Bombar's Beamers, which is down in Wilmington, North Carolina now, uh, they did the work. And this is another case study of, you know, just because it's been sitting doesn't mean it's in good shape. No. Um, it had been sitting through, you know, a quarter of a century of winters where it got hot and cold, and so there had been a lot of condensation that have been building up inside the cases. And so we wound up having to tear the transmission down and the engine. Uh, We had to go through everything. Um, And so Pete put it back together as essentially a brand-new 1982 R100 RS that just happened to be 30 years old at the time. And um, I think that it has just been a remarkable bike. And it is one of those things where uh, I think you probably see the pictures on Facebook because I mm-hmm. I, I probably accidentally um, post the pictures of that one more than the other ones because <laughs> people people just comment on that bike so much and it's it's kind of fun for me but it's uh, it's a fun bike to ride it is a a great machine and I would say that you know it's pretty clear the when you compare and contrast the seventy uh, seventy seven to the eighty two that, uh, you know, there were some things that BMW figured out along the way that yeah. made them maybe not as refined in terms of finish, but better in terms of functionality. Yeah, I'll agree with you there. Uh, 
for my money, uh, I'd, I'd still, even aside from the collectability of the 77 RS, uh, putting all that aside, uh, I still like the, just the aesthetics of the, of the earlier model a little bit better. The switch gears, um, mm-hmm. there, you know, there, there's, there's things on the earlier models that are a little bit more appealing to me in a design element, uh, even as far as the gauges go, just the coloring and how everything was sorted out that way. I just have a fondness for that. But as you say, that bike uh, was going under refinement. Um, what One thing I wanted to ask you was that you say that's a Euro, that was a Euro spec bike. So it's uh, obviously yeah. kilometers uh, on the, on the uh, clocks. Now I've got a Euro spec uh, RT from uh, 94. And so the first thing I noticed about that aside from the kilometers on there is there are no reflectors on the fork legs uh, that wasn't required as a European spec, nor are there uh, reflectors uh, on the rear bike, the red reflectors. Uh, so your yeah. so your 82 RT Euro bike, that might have, does it also have a kickstart? Yeah, so, so yeah. a couple of things about it that are yeah. interesting, right? Because at the time, if you were going to import it into the United States, irrespective of the fact that it was delivered in West Germany, it still had to conform to the U.S. DOT requirements. Right. So it's, it rolled out of a dealership in Mannheim with the reflectors on the fork legs and on the back. Okay. And the speedometer, and this, this actually drove me crazy for a while, and then I said, you know, just live with it. Um, it's not that the the speedometer is in kilometers, but rather that it's got the uh, the speedometer, the eighty five mile an hour speed limit. Oh yeah, right. Um, and I thought, well, that's one of the things I'm going to change right away. And then after a while, it was like, you know, I just it's I don't really ride it that fast anyway, so who cares? And it is just another aspect of that bike that makes it unique and original. But yeah, you're right. You know, there there were real differences. Yeah. The Kickstarter being one of them, Tom and others have told me that actually, if you were out of your mind, you could have ordered a bike in the States and had a Kickstarter <laughs> as an option, but nobody did. And Tom would quickly tell you, and by the way, if it does have a Kickstarter, don't ever use it because it's apparently it's once and done um, on the on the 1,000cc bikes. You know, it worked just fine on the 600s, but yeah. not so much on the big bore bikes. Interesting. Okay. And then... Uh... Last one uh, would be your 79 RS. So I want to ask you first about that. So uh, that is that the, the silver and blue two-tone? It is that, okay. yeah. And, you know, it's kind of funny because I fell in love with the smoked red the first time I saw it. And then that blue and silver two-tone the first time I saw it, it was like, oh, my goodness, they found a way to make an old man's bike out of this. Um, <laughs> and... And, uh, of course, I have matured over the years, but the more I looked at it, the more I thought, that's just a cool color combination. There's no way around, but that just looks brilliant. And um, I'd, I'd gotten close on buying one a couple of times, and for a variety of reasons, it, it failed me. And then... Um, I met a guy out in Chicago land. So he technically was in Indiana who had bought this thing uh, himself and he was going to Bob it. He was going to 
um, disassemble it and build himself a bobber to go with his R100S. And as he got the bike and realized what kind of shape it was in, apparently he uh, he had second thoughts. He said it was just too nice to do something like that too. And then he had a, an issue with an aging parent uh, that he needed to go spend some time with, and so he just decided that he was going to sell it. Uh, and we negotiated a price on it, and you know, it's an interesting bike. It actually came uh, from a town, uh, two towns over from the one I went to high school in originally. Um, and the guy who owned it uh, originally rode it all over the country. He put 100,000 miles on it. Wow. Okay. Uh, and, and he tracked all the rallies that he went to, some of which I was at, which I thought was kind of funny. And then he got to a point where he just couldn't ride, didn't want to ride, uh, and sold it. And so I felt the sort of compelling draw to the story. And um, it, they always look better in, in, as a trio anyway. So I figured I would go ahead and get it. And that one's been an interesting one because it uh, came to me and it was running great. Uh, but as we dug into the bike, we realized that there were some things that it really, really needed. And, you know, it had been well-maintained, but maybe not perfectly maintained over the years. And so my buddy Peter and I, Peter Bombar, uh, as we looked at it, we said, you know, if we got the bike apart, anyway, we should really do this one right. And um, so we decided that we would pull it all down. Um, gonna, it has a Seven Rock uh, uh, barrels on it. Um, the bike originally uh, had dual, the heads had been dual plugged back in the early 80s, ironically by Tom Cutter. Um, and uh, so we decided I could have gone back to the single spark plugs, but we decided we'd leave it as a dual plugged bike that um, with between the, the, the new cylinders and then rebuilt heads, all of that done. We decided that while we were at it, we should put a wedge tail ignition in it, and um, so it's actually still on the uh, still on the rack right now. But we're probably a week or two away from it being ready to be out in the wild and uh, and be running again, probably for the first time in eight or ten years. Wow, that's uh, that's I'm, exciting! I'm really excited about yeah, it. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, exactly. I'm sure you're chomping at the bit to get on that. All right, so last question on the RS here. So. I'm going to give you a, a choice. So obviously you've got an affinity for the RS. Uh, you've got two uh, of your, well, three ones that you've really drawn to. Uh, the 77 um, non-CFO, this one we just discussed, the 79. Was that a, like a, was it a Bronco? What was the paint scheme called? Bronco something? I can't remember. Oh, I uh, well, it's it's a there's a German name for it. I okay. have to look it up. It, it doesn't necessarily translate easily into English. Okay. All right. Anyway, somebody listening will know. And of course, your smoke yeah. your smoke red uh, RS. All right, Robert. So I'm going to give you the choice of three RSs uh, to, uh, and you can pick. You have to pick one to add to the stable. So I'm going to say, choose between these three. A 92 Monolever, Monolever RS, which would be in the same color as your 79. Uh, yep. an, an 88 uh, with the white paint scheme uh, with the blue, uh, blue sort of sports stripes on the tank. Uh, 
or the one I have, the Gold 78 RS. Of those three, which one would you pick to put in your garage? So if I had the opportunity to do that right now, I would go with the 92. There you go. Um, because I have actually been curious about the the monoshock bikes. Um, I've never actually ridden one. I have been around them, and I just I think it would be a nice compliment to the ones that I've already got. Well, I'm gonna Robert. I'm gonna go ahead and pre-approve that purchase for you. Um, <laughs> And I just bought a Monolever RT last year, and it was a it's an eye opening ex- experience. I'll tell you that. After getting a, uh, get on a twin shock, get on the Monolever, there it's it's different, uh, and different yeah. is different is good. Uh, I don't I don't know that I can say it's better, uh, but it's different. I mean, there's so many things I like about the twin shock that. I can't just categorically say it's a better bike, but uh, yes, I, I'm going to approve that purchase for you. So we'll, we'll keep an eye out uh, for you uh, for one, Robert. There you go. If somebody <laughs> listening has one, give me a call. <laughs> All right. Uh, let's go over some of our uh, standard questions that we grill everybody with. Uh, I have an idea. I know what uh, the first, uh, some of the bikes here on this first question are going to be, but uh, for you, Robert McIsaac, uh, the, Mount Rushmore of the 247 would be as follows. Yeah, for me, the Mount Rushmore would be that 82 RS. Uh, It is just a brilliant bike in every way. Uh, We have become uh, fast friends over the years. And I like to say, you know, I like them all. But that one, I feel like I don't ride so much as I wear. It just, it just feels perfect to me and I'm, I'm a i'm a big fan of that bike okay number two number two if i could have it i would have a 1974 r90s so uh you're a you're a I silver always, you're a silver smoke guy i'm a silver smoke guy i'm also a slash five switch gear guy yeah okay you know, one of the things i love about the 74s and i get people are going to say well the brakes on the 75s are better and they were um and the transmission on the 75 and 76 was better and they were uh but that that fascinating combination and that very germanic thing of we're going to transition gradually which is also code for we're going to use up all the extra parts along the way <laughs> right um I, I just thought that 74R90S is, is a smoking hot deal. All right. Number three? Number three would actually be a long wheelbase R75-5. All right. Um, again, it's an interesting machine because it's a transitional bike. Uh, they already knew what they were going to do with the frames, uh, stretching them out on the slash sixes. But they had all these parts left over, so, you know, they just welded in. Uh, an extra extra bit uh, to extend the drive shaft so that it's got the same wheelbase as the Slash 6, uh, but it's got all the cool bits from the Slash 5, um, including the switch gear that I mentioned. And the other thing, of course, that I forgot uh, that the R90S in that first year carried over with was uh, those beautiful machined aluminum turn signals. I mean, those are just sexy. Yeah, that, that's a good-looking setup. I have to agree with you there uh, aesthetically. Okay, so uh, number four and your final carving in the mountain is? I would actually.
actually probably go with that 92 RS you mentioned. Okay. Um, I, I'm intrigued by the monoshock bikes. Uh, you know, I've actually never ridden one of the second generation or the, you know, last edition. We were just kidding bikes um, that came out. <laughs> um, but everything I've read about, you know, they were all based on the R80 engine, uh, which was an upgrade to the 247. And then they they uh, popped the bigger cylinders on them. Uh, they were down on horsepower, up on torque, different gearing. Uh, I just find that whole combination really pretty fascinating. And that color that you mentioned, you know, it's interesting because I really, the, the white ones look great. And this is just my personal preference. I'm not a big fan of the black wheels. Um, but that two-tone bike that they made at the end with the, the going back to the silver wheels, man, I just think that's a beautiful bike. Yeah. Well, the more and more we talk about this, the more and more that 92 RS seems like it's in your future. It, it, it could be. I, I think we can make that happen with your help. <laughs> that's great. That's great. All right. So you own uh, two of your four uh, Mount Rushmore bikes. That's good. That's good. I do. Yeah. yeah. That's good. All right. So we talked a little bit about this. Sort of maybe danced around this topic a little bit earlier in our conversation. Uh, and you can go either way on this. So your best or worst breakdown and repair story. So I always, the caveat here is, I always like to say, okay, one where you had a breakdown and you found a paper clip and some chewing gum and got the bike going again, or one where it was just, uh, you had to call a trailer and, and pack it in. Yeah. Well, so I'm actually going to give you one of each because okay. I think they're kind of interesting. I, um, that 82 RS that is my ultimate Mount Rushmore, which I love so dearly. Here's another interesting story. Um, it's a fantastic bike. Uh, my good friend, and not just Pete Bombar, but also John Ross uh, here in North Carolina has helped maintain it over the years. We um, put a wedge tail ignition in it. Thanks, Mr. Uh, Cutter. And it is fantastic. But we had this weird electrical problem that cropped up a couple of years ago where the electrics would just die and then they'd come back. And there's nothing more challenging than an intermittent electrical problem, right? Very you frustrating. Go away. Yes, yes. Oh, yes. my goodness. So it finally died one day. It was the first time that I'd ever had a motorcycle fully, fully die. Uh, it, I had to push it a mile to get it to a parking lot. And they're heavier than they look when you're pushing them. <laughs> um, but um, turned out uh, that when we got it over to Mr. Bombar or to Mr. Uh, Ross's shop and in concert with Mr. Cutter uh, providing remote support, we discovered that there is a wire that goes between the coils. And it looked fine. The sheathing on the wire looked fine. But inside, no doubt, contributing to it was the 25 years in the barn the inside of the wire had decayed and it had an intermittent break in it, which eventually just finally broke. And when it broke, everything was dead. Wow. And, uh, so that one was a walk home, uh, experience, but, uh, but John Ross, brilliant, brilliant technology guy here was able to figure that out. And, uh, and we solved that problem. See, now let me, let me jump in here and say, this is one of the reasons why I love asking these questions and, 
yeah. people getting this sort of extra bit of knowledge because this may or may not happen to somebody uh, on the road. Yeah. But now just hearing that story, and I can think of a few times where I had heard a story at a rally or hanging out with somebody. And then sure enough, I think it for me it was the uh, the gas uh, tank wasn't venting properly on my GS. Oh, yeah. And I'd still, what oh, I still what that one too. Yeah, you know, yeah. what the hell's going on? You know, I'm sitting there scratching my head and I'm just, you know, going through the Rolodex of things. I was like, oh yeah, somebody told me about this once. Sure as enough, yeah. I, I opened up the pop the gas cap and this swoosh of air came out and I was on my way. So point being there, uh that's a, a great story uh with that coil connecting wire that uh, that's the one that um sort of uh connects the two uh in circuit there. And so somebody's going to hear this and maybe one day break down and realize, ah, I need to check that. So good. Yes. So that was, that was one. The other one, and I think, you know, it's, it's always interesting how you meet really both interesting and, and I find nice people when you're out and about. And my very first big trip, uh, you know, I uh, I had owned the BMW that R60 for a year, and I wanted to take a big adventure ride. It was sort of my test ride um, because we were planning to go to Minnesota the following year uh, for the rally, uh, and so I decided I was going to take this uh, big circuit from New Jersey down the Skyline Drive in New in uh, Virginia, work my way over to the North Carolina border, and then back up uh, along the Outer Banks. And uh, my dad uh, had given me some sage advice along the way, including, um, listen, if you have a flat tire, if you have a rear tire that goes flat and you can't put the bike on the center stand, just lay it down on the right side saddlebag and you'll be able to get the um, the, the axle out and, and all of that and be able to do a fix. And I thought, okay, that's great. That is advice that I clearly hope I never need. And I was, I was on my way back on the um, the Virginia uh, 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 Barrier Islands, and I decided I would stop out at uh, Assateague Island to scope out the wild horses. And I went across a wooden bridge on a road, and took a splinter about the size of my pinky through the center of the tread, and the tire obviously deflated quickly. And so I got over to the side of the road, and I it's it's. July or August, I'm now being eaten by insects. And um, so I did what my dad told me, laid her over and started on this thing. And some guy in a clapped out Chevy pickup truck stopped and he looked at me and he looked at the bike and he needs some help. And I had no idea who this guy was, but, you know, we got the wheel off. We got the tire off the wheel. We got, I had a new tube. That was the other thing my dad said, always travel with an extra tube. Indeed. Got yes. the new tube put in patched the inside of the tire, pumped it up enough with that miraculous little pump that sits inside the, under the seat and, um, and was able to ride the bike back to, uh, to a local gas station and pump the tire up. But I thought, you know, just what a wonderful experience to have that guy uh, in that old Chevy pickup truck stop. And he didn't know me and I didn't know him. And yet there was just something that uh, a little bit of compassion there that I'd like to think is a bit of all of us. And um, so that was, you know, a, a good story had a happy ending. Um, I was just really happy that, uh, that I found somebody to help me. And, uh, and then I made a beeline for home. That, that trip <laughs> I decided I would, 
I would I would saddle back up and I rode as hard as I could up the uh, the balance of the Delmarva Peninsula and I got on the last ferry out of Lewis, Delaware, going back to Cape May, New Jersey. Got the bike on this ship and strapped it all in and I went upstairs and you know I'm just I'm just kicking back and relaxing and. There was one other guy up there, and he spent the voyage telling me all these stories about living on the Jersey coast and the storm of 35 and all of this stuff. And I thought, if I hadn't had that flat tire, and then if I hadn't hustled home, and if I hadn't gotten on this ship, I never would have heard these stories. But now I've just been enriched by these two people whom I happen to have met sort of by accident. Um, and I think there's a story in there about why we ride some of these things. It's an opportunity to get out and uh, maybe expose ourselves to things that we wouldn't if we were just sitting at home. And there is some, there is just some great adventure, great stories that are out there to be found. Wow. Robert, I don't, I don't have anything to add there. I think you really summed all that up uh, quite well. Uh, thanks for sharing that. All right. Sure, uh, thank you. Yeah, last one here. So we'll get all. This is a question we covers the a wide spectrum of things. You could go back in time and change one design element or one sort of mechanical design element on the two four seven. There are many uh, that uh, owners of these bikes find annoying. What what might be that for you? Yeah. So there are actually two that just spring to mind. The first one, of course, is the suicide stance that were on the early, uh, well, all the slash fives and the early slash sixes, and so I guess all the slash sixes and the early slash sevens. Those spring-loaded stands that would pop up, um, they were just awful. <laughs> and and um, I, I sort of understand what somebody was thinking about when they did what they did, but I sure am glad the nice people came out with the brown side stands because those are just fantastic as a fix. And then the other one is... I'm sure that from a cosmetic standpoint, hiding the uh, hiding the front brake master cylinder under the tank was a good idea. But from a maintenance standpoint, it is a really bad idea. So um, that's actually, you know, on my 77, which I'm trying to keep as as close to original as possible. Um, that's where the that's where the master cylinder lives under the tank. But on the 79. Uh, we moved it up and put it on the on the right handlebar, more like it is on the eighty two, because uh, it's just a so much better place to to see it and work on it. Yeah, there's an interesting story. I talked uh, with William Plam about that, and he said at one point um, that tra- uh, doing the uh, changeover from under tank to handlebar was pretty affordable. Uh, you, mm-hmm. you, it was pretty affordable to buy, to buy the kit. Then apparently. I guess was it uh, was it Brembo uh, or that was making the brake components got wind of that and stopped selling it as a kit uh, and <laughs> decided they could make a lot more money uh, selling it as individual parts. Um, so yeah. yeah. Anyway, yeah, I hear you. You know, I've got uh, what one, two, three bikes with the under tank master cylinders, and of course. When I, generally speaking, when I buy a bike, I'm going through all components, uh, refreshing it. So I've not, you know, all my bikes with those uh, under tanks, I've not had any problem with it. And the brakes, they're not great, uh, obviously. And you've got a lot better functionality with a handlebar cylinder, no doubt. Uh, All that being said, you know, if you spend the time to get those things tuned up, 
and go through your brake system, they're serviceable for for what they were. Oh yeah, you know. So I mean, honestly, they're very serviceable. The thing that I really find annoying is that every time I take the tank off, there's a risk of chipping the paint. So I'd I'd really rather not have to do that. Yeah, the most annoying thing I find uh, for me is. Uh, because of my rural location and I'm on really sometimes bumpy roads and going up and down steep hills is just the brake failure light flashing uh, sometimes when I <laughs> when I know I've got plenty of fluid in there. But uh, anyway, like I said, uh, there's a lot of those different things uh, we all find annoying from time to time. Well, look, Robert, uh, great conversation today. Really, I really enjoyed it. We covered a variety of topics. And like I said, uh, BMWs have been in your blood for nearly all your life. It shows uh, with all the passion and enthusiasm you have for the bikes that came through in our conversation today. And of course, uh, it comes through in this event. Uh, you've got planned May 4th and 5th down there in North Carolina. That's something we'll link to in the description section of the podcast. We encourage folks to check it out. You can find Robert on Facebook uh, and all other sort of BMW forums out there as well. So Robert, Great job today. It's been a pleasure getting to know you this year and continued success. Thanks very much, Darren. Have a great evening. Well, that is a wrap this week. Links and information to the May Open House we discussed with Robert in the description section of the program. We're working on some wonderful programs in the coming weeks, including interviews with Wes Burden at Apex Cycle, Matthew Parkhouse, and a conversation with the legendary Hans Muth. So, until next time, so long, everyone. The Airheads 247 podcast is distributed and produced by From Off Productions. Our producer engineer is Jeff Glover. I'm Darren Dorton. Look forward to catching up with you next time. Mm -hmm.